Anthony Kim built virtual schools before anyone had heard of such a thing. He now runs Education Elements and has worked with over a thousand schools and school districts on projects ranging from personalized learning adoption to project management and leadership capacity building. We talk about the patterns he sees after so many school visits, how educators work better together, and Anthony's book on the subject, what will change fast and what will not in education, and so much more. This is jam-packed with tips from Anthony's experience, so listen in. Here he is. Hi, Anthony. Welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here with you and uh, excited to share some ideas with uh, your audience. We're very excited as well. We're huge fans. I just uh, finished your recent book, which we're going to talk about, and I'm also going to link in the in the show notes. The first question I have is linked to the time since you cr- created Education Elements. So I think you you started in 2010, and I read somewhere that you've already worked with over a thousand schools or close to a thousand schools. Is that right? Yeah, I started the company uh, after I left Edison Schools in 2010. And one of the things that we were, I started thinking about was how to help schools select and implement uh, digital online courses uh, into their day-to-day instruction and found that it was really a struggle for many schools to figure out how to integrate it into their instructional strategies um, and even adapt the way they, they work. And so um, that was kind of the you know, version 1.0 of education elements, uh, helping schools across the country implement digital content, redesign their school models, and uh, provide coaching and support to educators who are trying to implement some of the tools that were available to them. And a lot of those shifts came because, you know, the advent of cheaper devices like the iPad and Chromebook and uh, more software being on the cloud and making it easier to implement and such. That was pretty early, starting in 2010 already, um, you know, leveraging stuff like the cloud and iPads and stuff like that. That's that's pretty fascinating. I have a, a, a tough question early on in our chat, but our, our audience is really interested in school growth. I mean, they're thinking in terms of how to grow their school or at least create, you know, make their school sustainable. And they've made the link already in their minds that if you have a good learning experience, Parents will probably like that, um, and maybe more parents will come to your school. But from all your experience engaging with so many schools, have you ever seen any link or even correlation between more innovative learning environment, better instructional approach, and sustainable or growing schools? Yeah, of course. You know, we, we've worked with private schools, charter schools, and school districts. And, you know, I think I personally visit a hundred schools a, a year. And probably what I notice the most and the thing that I think is missing the most is how anyone coming to a school like in the first five to 10 minutes experiences the school. Having gone to so many schools throughout the year, like I, I've started to notice patterns that, you know, if the entrance experience and the, the front office experience isn't great, there's high probability that the rest of the core of the school is, it's also not going to be as great as one might think. Um, And it has to do with like the front kind of the, you know, the initial experience that one might have. And I think if we think about other places that as individuals we engage with, and whether it's, you know, the airlines or the grocery stores or wherever, if you have like a really bad experience within the first five to 10 minutes in entering engaging with an organization, you're going to have a bad impression for the rest of the 
experience. And so I, I think one area of improvement for education across the board is how do, how do we have really welcoming and customer-friendly uh, experiences at all of the schools that, um, across the country? Yeah, and you look at uh, companies sometimes. Also in your book, you were referencing Zappos, which you, you referenced them in terms of their organization, which we can talk about later. But also they are known or they were known for an amazing customer experience and customer service. Yeah, there are a lot of schools across the country that have good core products, which is like the instruction. But And same with like Zappos, there's a lot of companies that were trying to offer shoes online. But what made them different and, and better is that from the minute you logged in to the point you bought something to the customer you service you received when you didn't like a product and the return policies, that created the experience, not just getting better, cheaper shoes. So I think people in general today expect a uh, have a higher standard for an experience when they're engaging in any kind of service. And you don't, you know, people still joke about like the Department of Motor Vehicles, DMV, and how bad that experience is. And uh, you don't want to be on that end of the spectrum. And how is that linked? Because I, I really do believe it is linked with personalized learning, which is your specialty. And is one of the positive acts of personalized learning uh, related to customer experience? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you receive the same thing as somebody next to you and you know that their needs are different, you're not going to feel like it's a better experience and you're not going to get exactly what you want or close to what you want because it wasn't um, thought like the delivery wasn't thought with you in mind. The delivery was really thought with you or the student as an abstract object. Right. It wasn't personalized to each individual. And so now, you know, in all, many of our experiences, in day to day experiences, we expect a, a greater deal of personalization and real time interaction and real time feedback. And when we don't get that, it starts to degrade our overall engagement and interest in the classroom or schools or whatever service you're trying to get. And I think, you know, the the example, the pattern you mentioned of, you know, as you visit 100 schools a year and you look at the front office, that's a signal. I mean, if if that's that's well designed, it means that the team is thinking about how to design everything in the school in, in a way that's engaging and compelling. When you were saying that, I, I remember the discussion I had recently on a show, on a podcast episode that will come out soon with Joe Erpelding from Design 39 School. I don't know if you visited uh, their school, but they have their, their front office is called the Welcome Center. And it's, you know, it's just, there's no front office, it's a Welcome Center. So it's kind of, you know, following the principles you, you mentioned. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, I, I think about other industries all the time. And, you know, one that's kind of at the forefront of my head right now is the difference between SoulCycle and traditional spin classes and gyms. <laughs> and SoulCycle did was create like um, a whole experience. And as a result, like there's a cult-like following. And so, you know, there's still gyms with spin classes that are empty, but SoulCycle's creating new... Uh, enthusiasts around spin class just because of the overall experience and the motivation. And so I think schools can think about instead of being 
a spin class in a gym, like how do we create that whole experience that motivate and inspire people to come every day? And I think the, um, the experience that you have at the Welcome Center that you mentioned is really important because that's the experience that every teacher is going to have, every parent's going to have, every student's going to have as they walk in the door every single day. And that becomes a, a habit over time as to how you're going to experience the school. And if it's not a good experience, you're going to end up having um, a bad or um, you know a negative impression of, of the school. Did this the school uh, Design Thirty Nine Campus? Um, they, they're part of the Poway Unified School District. The the reason they have this welcome center, the reason they're called Design Thirty Nine, is because they use design thinking um, in the way they they created the school. And I know design thinking is close to your heart as well because your co-author on your latest book works for. IDO, right? Yeah, Alexis. She yeah. actually worked at uh, Zappos and then went to IDO. So how, do you think, I mean, is it is design thinking something that schools should, should become aware of or is it a bit too advanced in terms of a process for them to become aware of at the moment? Yeah, you know, I, I think a, a lot of people in education are aware of design thinking. When I was first uh, introduced to it at Stanford and 2010. Uh, for the last five years, there was a, a lot of engagement around the theories around design thinking. I, I think the challenge has been practitioners have had trouble implementing design thinking in the structures that they work in today. An example of that is, you know, if, if you need to spend time empathizing and you need to grab teachers and students together to spend four hours kind of brainstorming and thinking through these things, many schools don't have the structure or time or space in order to have that process even started. So maybe that's a good segue to, to maybe talk a bit about how, how you would approach a new engagement a new, with a new school at Education Elements. Uh, so you know, they want to change. Um, I guess you have, you know, different approaches you might take. Maybe talk to us a bit about um, how, how a new engagement works, and that would also, you know, help schools understand what they should be doing if they want to uh, start uh, designing their their customer experience, their school, their their instructional approach in a better way. Yeah, you know, our services have multiple starting points because we find that schools that we work with. One, have different priorities that they want to start with. And it's never the, the same spot in terms of whether some schools might want to start with their strategic plan. Some schools might want to start with implementing their strategic plan. Other organ school districts uh, have heard about personalized learning and they want to implement that. Others feel like they need to really develop their instructional leadership. So because of that, we offer multiple categories of services uh, from strategic planning to leadership development to curriculum selection and, and uh, mapping to personalized learning and school model design and such. But kind of the underlying story or work behind all of that is, one, how do educators work better together? How, how do they uh, share information more and knowledge uh, more effectively? And how do they meet? Because uh, a lot of educators are in meetings. So like, how do they meet more effectively so that they could get things done? 
And we find like if we can solve some of those types of problems, some of the kind of the adult operational problems, regardless of what their priority is, whether strategic planning to personalized learning, they could get to uh, implementation and get into a, a feedback loop much quicker. And as a result, like learn from the process um, more effectively. And around this topic of, you know, organizational uh, management and work practice, in your book, you talk about responsive organizations, and I'm assuming this plays a role here. How, how can schools become more responsive? Can you maybe elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> kind of the uh, antithesis of um, responsive would be a school that has like a vision and they're like, we're going to implement this vision. We think we're totally right, regardless of what new information we get. And we expect, because we thought about this uh, a lot, we expect that people are going to want this particular thing. And so it's this whole, like, if we build it, people will come mentality. And that, in today's world, probably doesn't work as well uh, in a world where we have more uh, access, choice, options, lots of different distractions and more information than we've had uh, in the past. So responsive uh, really talks about like, how do we shorten the development cycle um, so that as we try things and implement things, that new information and the new data that we are getting helps us iterate and evolve. And so I think this idea of shorter development cycles, shorter planning cycles, getting more data as uh, you know, users have experience or students have experience, and and then making improvements based on that on a more frequent basis is really what responsive looks at. Yeah, and we we do marketing for schools um, in a large part, and. We see that's very true for our work. I mean, we we set out in one direction, but then we get feedback and we adjust and we adjust and we we do what we call split testing and a lot of right. tests to see what works. And somewhere in the book, you also mentioned the, the concept of a pivot. So how does that play into being a responsive organization, the concept of pivoting from, I guess, one direction to another in terms of your goals? Yeah, that's, you know, that comes from, obviously, that comes from uh, Lean Startup with Eric Reese. Um, and I, I think in general, there's been a misunderstanding of what people mean by or what he meant by pivot, which is, you know, you don't just drop what you did and then pivot into something completely different. Uh, a pivot is really like you had a hypothesis and... Um, because of the data you got, uh, you've made some course corrections. So you actually have one foot planted and you pivot the other foot, right? So there's an anchoring mechanism. Whereas a lot of times, like I think, especially in, you know, where I'm at right now, Silicon Valley, like people think a pivot is like, well, you know, we, we started offering bikes and now we're going to offer skateboards. Like that's a completely different, um, you know, uh, product offering. And or so, scooters. Yeah, or scooters or whatever. <laughs> and so I, I, I think the, the notion is of, of a pivot is as you get more data, can you make course corrections so that you actually get to the goal? Because today, you know, or in the past, like the way we got to the goal is um, we said, well, here's our goal. And we, we believe 
all these like thousands of steps we're going to take to get to that goal over three years is the best way to get there. And today we know that that's not the best approach to achieving goals because of how fast information's uh, flowing today. Uh, responsiveness and you know course correction or pivots. I think these are concepts that still quite a few schools, even if they understand design thinking and empathy and kind of designing new things with the customers, these concepts of responsiveness might link to failure. And, and that really scares a lot of school leaders that we talk to because they think, you know, we cannot fail in schools because we cannot fail with kids. Right, uh, and and they they believe that appearing, at least appearing to be steadfast, is important. How do you respond to someone with that frame of mind? Which I find I find very natural. I mean, it, it's it's natural that someone would would start off in that frame of mind. But how do you respond to that to show them that actually doesn't mean it's not that bad if you fail? Right, I think there, there's a lot of. Uh, complexity around around this idea, emotional complexity, right? Like yeah. the idea of failing forward sounds great, but you really don't want to fail. Um, so the the issue I, I I often see in this type of situation is one um, first people have to recognize that maybe we are failing today, and I think in many of the schools that we've uh, started to work with, um, they they were in a situation where like they couldn't fail anymore because this situation was pretty bad. So really like the only kind of, there's a, there's a lot of upside and there are a lot of organization or a lot of schools that are performing pretty well. Um, and I think the the ones that are already performing pretty well, they feel like they have much more to lose because if they mess something up, they might go down in ranking or whatever measure that they have. However, kind of the question, the first question I have for many many schools that we work with is, you know, although we're in the the work of educating students, are we as an organization a learning organization? And if you think about anybody that's learning, you are going to fail many times before you actually learn, right? There's never very few situations where the, as you're learning the first time you get stuff right. Otherwise, we'd all be experts at everything. So I think we have to make the shift in kind of the minds of the leaders and organizations that if you believe that you want to become a learning organization, which I believe schools should be, because that's the business we're in, um, then that's part of learning and evolving and, you know, growing. Uh, and we need to embrace that because otherwise we aren't growing or learning because we're, we're not making the mistakes that we need to make to learn. And I think it's very much linked also to how the world is changing because, um, you know, first off, it's exactly as you say, in schools, the schools are in the business of learning. Um, they have to be learning organizations, but also, especially today, with things changing so fast, you cannot but be a learning organization. 
Yeah, one of the things that uh, we've noticed is it's not just schools, but every Google, Airbnb, all these organizations and companies are all trying to figure out how to learn because that's how, that's how they evolve and that's how they grow. So if you trace back any of these, whether it's Google or Apple or Netflix, like they've evolved because they were learning how to do the, how to serve their customers better. And, and, and the conditions around, you know, the technology that was available and the, and, you know, the needs of, of the environment. And one thing I, I remember in your book, and it's a pattern, I've seen it in other books of forward thinking educators. You talk about prototyping. I think you, you mentioned prototyping in a, in a, in a section. And I remember reading also Pam Moran's book where she talks about, you know, small steps. And maybe that's also something to consider. You can fail in a very small way. I mean, in a summer camp, in a, in, you know, one course, you know, one school hour, that's okay. You can fail there. You're not failing the student. Then you can test and take small steps and then, and then improve. I don't know if that's a, that's a, an approach you take when you engage clients. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of a lot of schools have a tendency to uh, over-engineer a, a plan or a strategy, and it's really getting to the small steps for that plan and uh, identifying what are all the elements, and then validating that each of those steps are kind of the right steps along the way. And so constantly kind of learning, learning as you're, you know, I, I think people, this idea of like building the plane as, you know, you fly it has been like something people feel like is chaos and bad and in and, and many ways, but sometimes like that's the way you, you're learning depending on how big of a cycle you're looking at is like, as you try different things you realize what makes certain things more efficient or what gets you the effect that you want or the the experience that you want to have by trying little things and seeing if you could take those little things and and scaling it uh, as you prove that they, they work. And I think the difference between kind of prototyping and piloting is you already know what you're trying to do in a pilot and you just do it at a smaller scale. Whereas prototyping, you have a hypothesis of something that might work and you're testing those ideas and constantly building on it. Got it. Now, you know, my, my final question is relating to the future. So you're visiting a hundred schools a year. You've been doing this and you used to, you've been in education for decades, but this specifically for, for 10 years you've seen patterns and you're seeing change over time. What are your best guesses? Because I understand it cannot be but a guess of projecting five years or 10 years into the future. How are school districts going to evolve? Are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist? What do you think might change quickly? What might not change as fast as we would hope? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think as we all experience uh, policies and, um, Regulations, anything kind of government-driven, uh, change happens slower. 
uh, there's uh, you know a, a lot of different perspectives and stakeholders that have to align in order for these policy type things to change. So I think in in that realm, um, we'll continue to see slow change and perhaps not much improvement. Um, on the other end, well, I guess in in the current kind of condition, also we have a massive shortage of of teachers coming into the profession and educators coming into the profession because if you if you think about the type of work that you have to do you you know you have you have to come into a school as a teacher you have to be there a certain time you don't have breaks necessarily uh you're you only have limited windows where you could go to the bathroom or talk to a friend or even go get a cup of coffee you know and then you have all of this work afterwards and there's you know a lot of times there's just a, a lot of um emotions and and tensions that you're dealing with in day-to-day school environments. So I, I think we're going to continue to struggle to attract talent into uh, the educator workforce. At, at the same time, our access to information and data and content is so easy today. And I think students are going to continue to struggle to work in kind of the constraints that we're telling them to work in. And so the next evolution, I think, is rethinking what uh, student-teacher ratios look like, what the actual school day and what we're teaching students might look like. Um, You know, I was listening to a podcast the other day with uh, Adam Robinson, who was one of the founders of of, uh, Princeton Review. And, you know, I think he had an interesting point where like in high school, we are asked to take biology, chemistry, physics, all these different subject areas. And instead of really focusing on one that interests us. And so as a result, are we, you know, getting too much information and not really learning how to learn? And would we be better off really having students focus on some areas that they're really interested in and helping them better understand how to learn as kind of educational process so that in the future they can learn, become better learners. And so I think uh, schools that are starting to think about that, and definitely a lot of private schools have, uh, the high profile private schools have are shifting towards this level of problem solving. Um, I think we'll, we'll want to see more of that in public education. The Adam Robinson podcast, I think I, I listened to him on Farnham Street. Is that the one you mentioned? Right, yeah. Okay, so I can link it in the in the show notes. That was a really good good one. So sending some traffic over to other podcasts, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he was making some great points on that. Uh, do you think, from what you just said, w- will we, you know, as schools think more about customers? So obviously, the student is a customer, but also the teacher. You said, and you're right. The current teacher experience is pretty bad. You described it. Do you think that in response to the shortage, we will try to redefine the role of the teacher, maybe, you know, outsource or find technological ways to get rid of the administrative tasks, maybe, you know, more blended learning, less, less instruction, they're more like coaches, but is that maybe idealistic? Do you think that's, that's not going to really happen because of the policy environment or do you think that's, that's where teaching is going? Um, I think we're already, you know, 
in in that part of our evolution, I, I don't think that we're going to go away from that. There's some you know uh, folks that are trying to eliminate screen time uh, in schools, which I don't necessarily agree with. I, I think that like in order to be uh, proficient in the workforce, uh, we're all spending a lot of time on screens, um, and so. Yeah, it's it's important for people to learn how to manage all of that. Um, of course, I, I really think the the future of schools should have more of a supply and demand component. So, um, when I went to school in the UK, one of the things that w- was different about my school was one um, there were. Um, homerooms right and or houses per se and there were six houses and basically the students had to apply to be at the house but also we were interviewing each of the houses as well to see if there was a fit so um there was a kind of a matching system which i thought was interesting but once you got into the house all of the electives that the school offered were pretty much supply and demand like uh, lecturers would come in. Uh, if no one showed up to those lectures, then they weren't invited back. Or if people gave it bad reviews, they just didn't come back because it wasn't, you know, maybe the lecturer wasn't engaging or the content wasn't relevant. And so I, I think that it would be interesting to see a school where students had choice around what classrooms they got to go to based on the, the teacher in the classroom. So you come back and, you know, it's, I think it's a common thread throughout our chat. We talked about the, the customer experience, the enter experience, the customer experience, and you talked about all your services, they, they, they flow around how educators, educators work better together, share knowledge more effectively, and the concept of a feedback loop. And now you're talking about basically a feedback loop of teachers uh, receiving feedback from students and allocating, I guess, um, teaching time or you know, students to the right teachers based on that feedback. Is that right? I agree with that. I think it'd be interesting to see how, one, I... W- teachers would prepare their lessons differently if uh, one day they experienced no students coming to their class. And two, I think there's a shift in that model where it's not the job of the student to be present. It's actually the job of the teacher to come up with content and a delivery mechanism that's interesting. And so people might argue that's not possible in, you know, K-12 education, but if you look at university systems, that's how they're kind of set up, right? Like there's a class with 3,000 students in some cases because the teacher's so amazing or the professor's so amazing and engaging and the content's so rich. It makes total sense to me and it links to, I mean, a tight feedback loop, I think, can benefit any product or experience or service. And it comes back to your the lean startup you mentioned. I mean, for for me, it helps me very well, very much prove what we do for schools. When we get feedback, a customer stops working with us, that's feedback. Uh, We have to improve. Uh, There's something we did wrong. Uh, but yeah, right, right now, maybe some, you know, a lot of the schools are insulated from that. Uh, there's a whole school choice debate. There's a huge, very, very challenging uh, and kind of uh, hot 
polarized debate about that. And I don't think, but I don't think that's what you're talking about at all. I mean, putting, you know, competition and business into schools is more about, um, in the detail, how do I iterate the experience the student is getting, um, so that it's more engaging and therefore better learning. Right. And also just, um, where kind of changing the understanding of where the level of engagement needs to happen. So I think right now our tendency is if only the students were more engaged, they would learn better, regardless of how we deliver the content. And I guess my argument is uh, we, we need to shift that paradigm, right? How we deliver the content and how we engage matters a lot. And, and our job, part of our job is to draw in the students so that they want to learn. And that's where personalized learning can come in. But there's a lot of other things that you could do beyond personalized learning that can draw students in, including how they're welcomed every day coming into school. Yeah. And we might not want it to be a teacher's job, but I think it's it's a fact. And it reminds me of, of a quote I, I read in the book, Most Likely to Succeed, where it said it was really well uh, stated where it said that, you know, in 1893, the competition a teacher had was maybe, you know, church sermon in, I don't know, in the fifties, it was uh, radio with lots of st- static right now. It's Netflix, uh, Fortnite and all these things. So you have to raise the bar. And if, if your goal, because you, you mentioned we're pivoting towards a goal. So what's the goal? It's better learning. I mean, we have to find more engaging delivery mechanisms, better ways to, 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 to teach so that we, we, we are able to overcome the, the competition of Netflix and Fortnite. Whether we want, I mean, it doesn't sound nice. We might not want to have, but that's the world we live in, unfortunately. Well, I, I think actually it, it goes even beyond that, right? So um, the other day I was trying to find a video on a, uh, a particular behavioral science piece from Robert Keegan, right? And I actually found his live lectures online uh, to be quite boring and not interesting, although I really appreciate the actual content. Uh, so I searched more, I searched for more content from somebody that was just more engaging on YouTube. With the same content, it wasn't the original like uh, developer of the the theories, but it was just a much more engaging uh, presentation. And so I ended up watching those videos as opposed to uh, the more boring videos. And I, I think that's what I'm really talking about is like, I might be able to get a physics class now or uh, an astronomy class uh, online that's much more engaging and more interesting than the one I'm getting in my school. So why not listen to that? Got it. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, there's no reason you would listen to the original lectures there there is i think uh there is a good argument for uh, you know the big books classical education but i think that's that's first sources that's a different that's a different discussion and i'm just mentioning it so it does not come up in people's mind people's mind as an objection so i don't think one one excludes the other you could you know you read big books, old books for another reason, for access to the originals, for historical region reasons, for stuff like that. But if you want to just get the content into your head, you would go for the more compelling, engaging uh, delivery of that content. 
right that's that's great stuff anthony i i'm out of questions i wanted to ask you if you had any parting thoughts for the audience who are looking to create more compelling learning experiences in their schools in order to grow their schools yeah um i think the the idea is that i often try to share with education leaders that we work with is one all educators are working incredibly hard and it's amazing the amount of effort that goes into education two you know like i mentioned the um, Recruiting new folks into this field has been more than challenging across states, um, and there's a real concern about kind of the the pool of incoming educators going forward. So, again, I think kind of the lever that I think is the most important is figuring out how all educators can work together better uh, by sharing information, getting to action, learning from mistakes. Um, transferring knowledge faster to each other. And until we can figure that piece out, like I, I, I think that we're going to still struggle to continue to put a lot of effort in and not get the results that we want. Got it. Thank you so much, Anthony, for your time. Thanks, Andrew. And uh, thanks for inviting me to your podcast. Excited to hear it live. Yes, I'll let you know when it's ready. Thanks.